want you to take note that this chapter division is artificial. The Apostle Paul did not write 2 in verse 1. This is all his same thought of why man is without excuse before God. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judges. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and are doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant or impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient and continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality. There's no respecter of person. Literally, there's no receiving of a face with God. For as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day... When God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Father, judgment is not a particular topic that we like to talk about. It's something we like to avoid. But God, either we deal with the reality now, or God will have to deal with the reality when we stand before you and we are without excuse. So out of your love, you have warned us that you are an impartial judge, that you don't take sides, that you don't have favorites, but God, that your judgment is according to the truth. And God, we thank you. We thank you that truth is objective. We thank you that truth has no contradictions. We thank you that truth accords to reality so that we can live in this world knowing how to make decisions, knowing what is just, knowing what is true, knowing what is right. Thank you, God, that you have revealed that to us. Even if we've never opened a Bible, people still know intuitively, innately. Thank you, God, that when you created us, you created us with moral fabric. And Lord, today, God, this may not apply to us in the eternal realm, but God, we as believers need to be judging and examining ourselves. And Father, today, if you have brought someone to this fellowship who does not have the righteousness of Jesus, but is going to stand before you at the judgment day and plead their own righteousness... 
God, I ask the Holy Spirit to open their eyes that they will have no right standing before you because we all, in effect, have violated all of these principles. And so, God, as believers, you have given us ways to evaluate our Christian life. And as unbelievers, you leave us without an excuse. So, God, I ask, Holy Spirit, please work among us today and bring people to that point where they will say and confess, I do not have the righteousness of Christ. I repent from thinking that my own righteousness is good enough or somehow that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Judges don't judge that way. So help us to understand that and apply these truths today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. At the start of my reading, I appealed to the word therefore, just so you would see that this is all one argument in the Apostle Paul's mind. The argument began in Romans chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17, where Paul says, I am ready, as much as within me is, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Why was Paul so ready? He was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That good news about Jesus. Because that gospel is God's power. It is the simple gospel message that has power unto or leading to salvation. That is deliverance from God's wrath. Salvation from the power of sin in your life and the presence of sin when you see Jesus. That's the gospel message and he was not ashamed of that. He was ready to preach it in Rome. For therein, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. If you want to know what God expects of you when you stand before him at judgment, it is the gospel. That's the righteousness that God's going to require, not your own righteousness. When we stand before God, we will either plead the righteousness of Jesus or I will have to say, Lord, I am righteous in myself. And I don't think any of us want to stand before an impartial judge when we have violated all of his laws, if not in practice, in principle, we have. And so Paul is pleading now that we've got to have the righteousness of God because God's wrath is being revealed and it's not a universal wrath. It's not a wrath that God has given to everyone from birth, but it's those who were presented with gospel truth, those who were presented with the reality of a creator, and they have suppressed that truth. Those are the ones that God's wrath are being poured out on. And we see this also in chapter 2, where he says, O man, you who judge, who practice such things and are doing the same, do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches and goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? So God is postponing judgment. He is giving people over to their suppression of truth. What are they doing? They're exchanging truth. These people had truth. They knew God. They glorified him not as God. They became unthankful. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were not born in this darkened state where they could not respond to God. Now, I'm not believing, I'm not teaching the universal goodness of man at all. Sin is universal. All, every mouth will be stopped. The whole world will be guilty before God. So there's only two types of righteousness. The righteousness of our own by trying to work it out through the law, or the righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith. So Paul is continuing this argument. Now, divine judgment is not a popular topic. It probably won't be preached in many American churches. But let me remind you that it's the judgment and the wrath of God 
that often sparks renewal. It often sparks revival. Great church movements often began with the preaching of God's judgment and God's wrath. It is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. So God's judgment is necessary. Most people today have a notion that God will judge everyone based on whether my good works outweigh my bad works. But if that were true, the death of Jesus Christ was completely in vain. Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter, I can't remember the chapter, I can't remember the verse number, but it says this, if righteousness were by the law, Christ died in vain. The New King James says Christ died for nothing. God is completely just when he judges. That's what we see in this passage, that God is completely righteous in every time he judges you and I. We shouldn't be amazed that God judges. If God did not judge, every heinous act would go unpunished. You and I know in common sense that that can't be the God of the Bible. A God who would allow for just gross immorality and heinous acts of self-centeredness to go unpunished or not to merit every self-sacrificial thing. We know in our own intuitive minds that this cannot be the God of the Bible. We should rather be amazed that God has not poured out his wrath on mankind yet. Now we just see, we see the, the, the growth, the, the, the birth pangs. Creation is groaning. We see it in the signs and wonders of our day, famines, wars, rumors of wars. We don't know what politician we can trust. I've People send me podcasts of, of Vladimir Putin and how he is only trying to stop a regime that was a rogue regime called the Ukrainians. And then somebody will send me another one that talks about how the barbaric the Russians are. And we get bombarded from all these things. But I'm glad that one day Vladimir Putin and any other political leader will stand before an impartial judge who can just wipe away all the nonsense, all the media hype, and all the media buzz. We hear it about politicians. I... I I'm so tired of hearing about how corrupt our politicians are and how if it was such and such a politician, he wouldn't be examined this way and how our current politicians can hide documents in a garage and there seems to be no impunities. But believe me, there is coming a day when God will sift through all of this garbage. I am surprised that God has not poured out his wrath more. It is God's goodness. It is God's long-suffering the Apostle Paul is telling us that God gives people over to their reprobate mind to do those things that are inconvenient, to do those things that are not fitting in hopes that God may work through those things to bring them to humility and salvation. There are five principles that God is going to judge us on. The first principle we talked about last Sunday, and that is the principle of creation. And as believers, what should creation teach you and I? It should teach us that our God is a spirit being and that our God is in every place at every time. Yesterday in the men's Bible study, we looked at Joseph and how Joseph was in the house with Potiphar's wife with no man present. But what kept Joseph from committing adultery? It was the knowledge that he was living in the sight of God. That will postpone and it will avert God's judgment on our lives when we know that God is spirit. And so through creation, we know that God exists outside of time, space, and matter. We know that God is all-powerful. 
And we also know that our God is a divine nature. He's an intelligent being that is loving and compassionate on creation. Paul appealed to that to the life, in the cities of Iconia and Lystra when he says, God has not left himself without a witness in doing good and sending seed time and harvest. And he says, God in the past has winked at or overlooked or in long suffering is postponing judgment. He said the exact same thing when Paul was speaking to the Athenians at Mars Hill on the Oropagus. He said that we know that the divine nature is not like the man's devices, something that you make by your hands. I see all of your idols out there, but you've got one to the unknown God. The God who's outside of time, space, and matter. The eternal God who is all-powerful. And that's who we'll give an account to. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for thee. Our God is eternal, and we know that from creation. Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting is our God. Our God is something that our minds can't even fathom because of his power, his spirit-like nature, and his intelligence. God is infinite in what he knows. The psalmist wrote this, Thou art acquainted with all of my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. This is what God is going to judge us by, because God is everywhere, all-powerful. He knows all things, and creation is teaching this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Psalm 139, 4-6. So mankind, because of creation, is without excuse. Principle number two, and that is the principle of universal morality. Universal morality, universal truth. Everyone knows it. So Paul is talking about people who practice such things, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. How many times have we fit into any one of those categories? Unmerciful, unforgiving, disobedient to parents. Every one of us fits in this category. Who, knowing the righteous notion of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, therefore you and I are inexcusable. Because you and I readily define and recognize evil in other people. We're good at it, aren't we? I know I am. It doesn't take too long to find out somebody else's faults and to pick them out or their moral shortcomings. And because of that principle alone, we are without excuse. By making moral judgments, what does Paul say that we do? By making moral judgments, we are acknowledging we know the righteousness of God, but in second place, we are condemning ourselves. Why? Because we do the exact same things. When somebody lies to me, and I'm appalled at that, and I would say, I would never do that, you better be careful. How many of us have lied? How many of us have deceived? How many of us have told half-truths so that we look better? So we are actually condemning ourselves by making moral judgments. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, points out this. When we say things, when we're arguing with another person, it reveals the knowledge of a moral standard. And here's the things that we say. Would you like it if I treated you like that? That's not fair. I would never do that to you. Now, when we say those things and we actually do them, all we're doing is bringing condemnation. We all violate our own standard of right and wrong. Everyone's got a standard of right and wrong. I remember I was talking to a nurse. I was working in the school district, and I was helping children with diabetes, and we were measuring their sugar content and how much insulin to give them. And we began talking about other things outside of the school. And so she asked me what I did. I told her I was a pastor. I was a Christian teacher. 
And she says, I don't believe in any of that. And I says, oh, really? I says, do you have a moral standard? And she says, oh, yes, I do. And she began to tell me her moral standard. It was pretty elaborate. And I said, do you live up to your standard? And she goes, oh, no. I says, well, then you're under judgment, ma'am. And it got her attention because she realized the only reason she was rejecting Jesus Christ because she wanted to do her own thing. And even by doing her own thing, she couldn't live up to that. And so all she did was bring condemnation on herself. And we began to discuss the gospel. At that point, she became interested. We all violate our own standard. We practice the same things that we recognize that are sinful in others. And Paul goes on to say, do you think you'll escape? Good rhetorical question, right? C.S. Lewis, I'm going to quote him a lot today because he writes a lot about these kind of things. This very day, we fail to practice the behavior that we expect in others. When it's pointed out, we begin to make excuses for our own behavior. The fact that we believe in decent behavior, C.S. Lewis writes, is proven by how anxious we are to make excuses for it in ourselves. God's standard, what is God's standard according to? It's according to the truth. So then Paul appeals to logic, verse 3. And do you think? The Greek word is logizomai, where we get the word logic. It means to reason. It's also an accounting word in the original language where someone would tally the numbers and they would put them all in a column and add them up. And so what Paul is wanting them to do, he says, I want you to put all this in a tally. I want you to think it through. I want you to add it all up, and then you tell me if it makes any sense at all. So verse 3, he says, and do you think, do you reason, do you logic this out? Oh, man, notice the vocative. He's using it several times. It's a vocative. It's an address. It's an exaggeration. And I think this is one of the interlocutors that Paul is Man, don't get old, young people. (laughs) He's anticipating their argument. And he says, okay, let's look at this logically. He's anticipating what this man is going to say, this Jewish moralizer, this do-gooder, who thinks that I'm a good person, but I'm recognizing all the faults in other people. Do you think that you're going to escape? So Paul appeals to logic here. And this is what we do. We tend to minimize our own sins. That's humans in general. We minimize our own sin and we exaggerate the offenses in others. Jesus, when he was talking about judging, his idea in Matthew chapter 7 isn't that we're not to judge or discern right and wrong because then at the end of that passage he says, don't cast your pearls before swine nor give that which is holy to the dogs lest they turn again and tear you and trample them under their feet. So he's not saying that we're not supposed to be discerning. We're not to judge in the sense of condemning people. Judge not lest you be judged for with what measure you measure it shall be measured to you and what judgment you judge you shall be judged. Now you who've got a plank, a board, a beam in your own eye, how do you expect to pull the speck, the piece of dust out of your brother's eye? First, clear out that beam that is in your own eye. Then you will see clearly. You'll see yourself as you truly are. And so Jesus is saying the exact same thing, how we minimize our own faults and we maximize others. We tend to overestimate man's goodness and we underestimate God's holiness. Do you think you'll escape? Jesus was approached by a rich young ruler and he said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus recognized two flaws in this man's thinking. One, that humanity was good. Second, that there's something I could do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus wants to correct bad theology. First of all, he wants to show him that nobody's good. And then he wants to show him there's nothing that you could ever do to inherit eternal life. So what does he do? He tells him, keep all these laws. 
His answer was, I've kept them all since I was a child. I haven't broken any of these laws. Of course, Jesus knew that wasn't true, so he pointed out one more covenant. Well, I just told you with that, covetousness. He pointed out one more law, thou shalt not covet what the neighbor has. He says, okay, rich guy, you want to keep all the law perfectly and get to heaven that way? Give everything you've got and give it to the poor. You come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. Now, that was faith, wasn't it? He wasn't going to believe that because he had great wealth. So his two heirs was that man was good and that you could earn salvation. And so that's what Paul is trying to pull out in this passage, that none of us merit salvation. And when we know right and wrong and we see it in others, that takes away every excuse that you and I could ever have. The unbeliever will not have one, and you and I will not have one for the sin in our lives as well. Principle number three is the principle of judgment on conduct. Now, we like to preach about grace, and we do. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But God is not going to judge me on what I profess I believe in. My beliefs will be examined by way I live. This is, this is radical, but this is Bible. Jesus often said the same thing. James says the exact same thing. Now, I will never be justified by my works. You will never be justified by your works, but your works will justify you in the sense that they vindicate that your faith is genuine. There is no wishy-washy Christianity in Jesus' teaching. In New Testament teaching, you go to Ephesians chapter 5. There's a whole list of sins that every one of us are aware of and that every one of us practice. And Paul says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, neither be deceived by empty words. Then he goes in the book of Galatians and he lists the works of the flesh, outbursts of anger, lying, deception, drunkenness, Fornication, looking at something and lusting after it. How many of us have never done that? If that's the way you want to get to heaven, then you are without a prayer and without hope because Paul says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that if I repent of all these things, I live a perfect life from here on out, I'm going to go to heaven. No, it is all grace. But what does grace do? The grace of God is being revealed from heaven, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously in this present age, Titus 2, 11 through 14. That's what grace does. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are new people, and we are going to be judged, our salvation, by our works. And that's what Paul says in this next section, 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. When people hear the truth and they suppress the truth, that's when their hearts grow hard. I want you to go over to 121. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Notice the word became. And when you recognize wrongs in others, and you are not recognizing the wrongs and the faults in your own life, what are you doing? You are hardening your heart. So judging God's judgment based on our conduct the lack of self-examination. What does that lead to? And we can see this in over and over again, and I see it in my own life. When we fail to do self-examination, what does it lead to? It leads to a hardening of your heart. When you are daily examining your life, you say sensitive before God. And this is a principle of judgment, not just for the unbeliever. This is a principle for judgment for you and I. We need to stay humble before God. We need to have constant updates of confession of our lives before God. 
Because when we don't and we fail to, we become futile. We become hardened in heart. The second thing, delayed judgment is a double-edged sword. Delayed judgment is a double-edged sword. Either God's delayed judgment is going to lead us to get more and more callous and more and more flippant with our lives. You can get away from away from, away with sin for a long time before it finally has its comeuppance. Billy Sunday's famous sermon, Payday Someday. And so God's averting judgment has a double-edged sword. One, it gives us the chance to look at ourselves and to get right with God, but it also gives us enough rope that we can just walk away from God and hang ourselves. And so we've got to be careful with that. Delayed judgment is a double-edged sword. Repentance or we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Justification is always based on faith alone. I want to be clear on that. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, He, God, will render to each one according to his deeds. Your faith will be examined by the way you live your life. Those who are seeking, it's a present participle, verse 7. Eternal life, now that's actually the last word in the Greek text, but the English translator put it here because it is the direct object, or or the object of what he's saying, or the, the, the subject, rather. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, they are seeking. Now, that's, that's the participle right there. The participle is describing these type of people who are seeking eternal life, people who are of faith, people who are genuinely born again. What does their life look like? They demonstrate it with a longing for only what God can provide. They are seeking what only Jesus can do. And if that's the characteristic of your life, then you have confidence before God. Judgment is based on an impartial God. Whatever we are seeking, it will be revealing to God who our true master is. Self-seeking ambitions reveal who is on the throne of our life. Righteousness is always by faith. But what does it say in 117? It says, herein the righteousness of God is revealed, the gospel. From faith to faith for the just. So there are just people, right? There are righteous people. But who are those righteous people? They are the people who are living by their faith, by what they know to be true and what they believe in. That is what they're living by. And our judgment is going to be based on the works that we're performing. So in verse 8, it says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So patient endurance demonstrates a life of faith. Those who endure to the end, Jesus said it over and over again. The book of Revelation says it over and over again. They shall be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Is there a contradiction? No, wait till we get to verse 10. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. That's who you and I are when we believe we are God's workmanship. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, that's God, He will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When God begins a world work of faith in somebody's life, you can tell it by the way that they live. So Paul says here, What we're seeking reveals who our true master is. So by patient endurance, we are demonstrating a life of faith. 
There's no partiality. Jew first, and then the Gentile. Good deeds do not merit salvation. Good deeds simply mark out who is regenerated. The fourth principle is the principle of law and conscience that we're going to be judged by, 12 through 15. For as many have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. I want to refer us to some Old Testament examples. As many have sinned without law, they will perish without having a law. Now, later on, Paul says that they do by nature the things that are contained in the law. God is absolutely just. And God is completely fair because God has either given you the law as a Jew or God has written the law on your heart as a Gentile. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, did God unjustly judge those cities because they did not have the moral law? Abraham knew that they had enough revelation For one, they had creation. They had natural revelation. They knew by divine creation that they were created in the image of God, that they were created male and female, and that procreation was only through the union of a man and a woman. And they threw off that, threw off all restraint, and they had Lot living among them, a preacher of righteousness whose soul was vexed every day living among them. So they had two witnesses in their lives. And Abraham said, the God of all the earth, Genesis 18, 25, will you not do what is just? He said, God, if there are 50 people Spare the entire cities. Don't destroy them. And God said, if there are 50 people, I will spare the city. Abraham got down to 10, and God could not find 10 righteous people. Righteousness in the sense of what? Righteousness in the sense that they were responding to God's revelation through creation, God's revelation through Lot living with them, and the revelation of their own conscience. God could not find 10 people And that was the principle by where they were judged. The cities of Nineveh. Nineveh had two prophets sent to them, Nahum and Jonah. Jonah went because God's revelation to the Ninevites was being responded to. And so God sends Jonah to preach the good news and the entire city repents. And at the end of it, Jonah is disgruntled with God. And God says this, there are 140,000 people in the city of Nineveh who did not know their right hand from the left hand. They had certain knowledge of God. They didn't have complete revelation of God. And they didn't have the explicit preaching of a prophet. That's why I sent you. Should not I have spared those people? And then about a generation later, the prophet Nahum comes by and he pronounces God's judgment on the city of Nineveh because they had general revelation through creation. They had the revelation through the conscience. They had a prophet who came and spoke to them of the one true God of Israel. And when they walked away from that, God's wrath was outpoured. So whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law, we all know. What is right and wrong? Verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just in God's sight. They had the synagogue reading Sabbath after Sabbath. And just having it in your ears, just listening by going to church justifies nobody. It's not the hearers of the law. It is the doers of the law. Why? Because the doers of the law reflect that they have it written in their heart. That is the new covenant that God makes with you and I. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
He says, I make a new covenant with you and I will write the law of God in your heart and you will be forgiven. It's not listening to preaching that saves anybody. It's practicing what the message said. And so these Jews who sat in the synagogue week after week and listened to the scriptures were not justified because they simply listened to the scriptures. So Paul is dealing with the moralist in this chapter, the moralist who looks at others and thinks he's better than others. He's dealing with the moralist Jew who has the law and he listens to the law and therefore he thinks he's better than others. But when the Gentiles who do not have the law... Now this passage is difficult and I'll admit it that I'm not sure on how to interpret it. Either Paul is talking about Gentile Christians or he's talking about Gentiles in general. Now I believe, and I could be wrong, and I can be persuaded, I'll change my mind, but I think in this passage he's dealing with Gentiles who are not believers but just by nature. That is the key word that I think has convinced me of this in verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature. The Greek word implies that they do it by birth. It's innate. You look at every pagan in every society that is outside of Christendom, outside of Judaism, and they had laws that were almost identical. You look at the law code of Hammurabi. Why? Because God has placed eternity in man's heart. And we will be judged by that knowledge of our conscience. So we're judged by creation. We're judged by general knowledge. We're judged by our conduct. And we're judged by our conscience. Performance is not the basis. It's possession I mean, performance is the basis, not possession, the diverse judgment. Moral standards are the norm because they happen naturally. The words will be justified. Let's look at those. For when the Gentiles who do the law by nature do not have the law, these, although not having the law, show the laws of themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. Oh, where am I at? Hmm. Verse 13, thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Notice it's future tense, and this is what I think Paul is implying. He's implying that Gentile people who do not have the law, who by nature are responding to God's truth, God will justify them not based on just that limited knowledge, but God will give them complete revelation. I'll give you two examples in the New Testament and one example in the Old Testament. Two examples in the Old Testament. Naaman, he was a Syrian. He had a captive from Israel in his house, a young maiden. He had leprosy. I don't know if I said that or not. But anyway, he was listening to this maiden about the one true God that they had captive, taken captive. And he it was a slave in her home. And she said, if you were back in Israel, the one true almighty God, he could heal you. So Naaman takes a trip and he comes before the wicked king Ahab. And he says, pronounce a healing on me. I've got this leprosy. I, I, I've heard that, that, that you've got the power. And he says, you're just trying to pick a fight with me. I can't do anything. Elijah hears about it. He says, send him to me. So what does Elijah tell him to do? He says, I want you to go down and dip in the river Jordan seven times. Naaman is ticked off. He says, I could have stayed home and done that. Aren't the rivers of the Syrians better than this murky, dirty water, Jordan. And he's rebuked by one of his servants. And that servant is giving him general revelation about biblical truth. He says, should you not just do something simple? 
If he told you to run across the country and then run back again and then move dirt, you would have done anything you could have to get rid of that leprosy, wouldn't you? And that's the way the moralist is. He is running around doing everything he can to get right with God. And God is saying, all I'm requiring of you is to simply believe the message. Now, how do we know that Naaman believed? He went down to the river and he dipped, didn't he? That's how we know his faith was real. So what was he justified by? Yes, he was justified by faith, but what did God judge him by? God judged him by his works. That's what justified him. And so I think Paul is saying here that the Gentile will be justified. He will be given new revelation. He will be given everything he knows if he's following his conscience and following the God that he knows in his pagan religion. Another example was Rahab. Rahab. A woman who was justified by faith. But how did she prove her faith? She hid the spies because she believed in the one true Hebrew God. Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading a Bible, right? That didn't save him. He needed to know who Jesus was. So Philip comes up to the chariot and says, who are you reading about? He says, I don't know. Can you tell me? And he opens up that passage of scripture like a sheep. Before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who will declare his generation? Now, who is he talking about? He says, that's Jesus. He got more revelation. And that's what Paul is saying, that the Jews who don't have the law, they don't have it. All they have is general revelation. God will justify them. God will get truth to them somehow. Cornelius was a man who prayed. He was a man who did good deeds. And then an angel came to him and he says, you need to hear about Jesus, Cornelius. You need to hear the complete story. All these examples that I gave you this morning, all four of them were Gentiles, weren't they? Who knew that there was a God who was responding to the light and God gave them more revelation. So last principle that God is going to judge us by, and that is our motives. This is how God is going to bring just judgment on you and I. So even though we have may, may have good works, God's going to reveal what the spirit those works were done in. Verse 15 and 16. Who showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves in the day when God will judge the secrets of men, the secrets of men, according to my gospel by Jesus Christ. The gospel contains both judgment and grace. The gospel judges our sin on the cross. That's how serious God is about our sin that the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. But it also shows the grace of God that Jesus Christ was willing to die in your place and my place. God is fair. Will his judgment be according to truth? Yes. Will God's judge be impartial? Yes. God in his patience and his kindness is either leading us to an escape of judgment or greater wrath on the day of judgment. The Ten Commandments, the Jew had those. The natural conscience, the Gentile had that. My behavior shows what I really believe in my heart of hearts. It shows the world and it shows myself how I am living that day. If I want to judge myself, and if I am not continually judging myself, it's going to lead to a harder heart. Knowledge of what others do wrong shows that I know it in my own heart. Creation, without enthroning the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen, will bring judgment on us, for we are guilty as charged. So here's what Paul is leading us to, eventually, at the end of chapter 3, that we are to worship the Creator. We are to withhold condemnation on other people, knowing that God is patient with them and God wants them to be saved, we should be examining our lives in the light of the way that we live our lives. We should be longing for others to come to the fullness of his grace 
And we should trust him in sincere faith that shows it in our actions. So this morning, I just want to, again, invite anyone who's visiting with us or maybe somebody who's come here week after week, and you're under conviction right now. You say, you know what? My deeds really, they don't look too good. And if that's what my faith really is like, then maybe my faith isn't real. Or maybe you've been hammering on other people and you've been really good at it and say, look at that guy, look at her, look at the, what, I can't believe that. And then you find yourself maybe doing the same things. Do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? So all we have to do is plead his grace and his mercy and then follow him in obedience. Or if you're without Christ today and you're saying, this stuff sounds new. I've never heard this before. I didn't know that God was actually going to judge me. And I was either going to be in heaven or I was going to be in hell for eternity. And by what you said this morning, Pastor, I've looked at others and I know when other people do wrong and I'm doing the same thing, so I'm under God's judgment. I've seen creation and I know there's a creator, but I'm not really thankful to that God. I know my own conscience convicts me, but I don't listen to it. I know the Ten Commandments. I know a couple of them anyway. Thou shalt not lie, and I lie. What do I need? You need the righteousness of God that is by faith in what Jesus has done for you. So if you need to know and talk to me about that or talk to one of the men of the church, I invite you to do that today. But let's close in prayer, remembering that our God is good. It is the goodness of God. It's the favor of God that brings us along to this point of decision. And maybe it was the goodness of God that brought you here today to listen to this. Father, I thank you, God, that you are just. I thank you, God, that you are impartial. I thank you, God, that you placed a conscience within every human being. And God, you have determined our bounds. You've determined our destinies in certain parameters, where we live and how we prosper. And you have done it so that men might seek the Lord in hope that we might just grope for you and then find you because you are not far from any of us. You are a God that's near, and creation tells us that. All we have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus, and we will be saved. Father, help us now to make a decision on what we've heard. In Jesus' name.